Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodark. I'm here with Chase Amante. Chase, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Josh. How are you? I'm very good. It's been a long time since you and I recorded together. And before it was me walking you through the process of sustainability things. This time it's my behind the mic series when people who are very good at leading conversations lead me in the conversation. I appreciate your agreeing to yeah, do this. Absolutely. We're, we're going to reveal all today, <laughs> deep secrets and get to the interesting stuff. I'm not sure how much of the episodes I did with Dove Barron and Dan McPherson. I called the series with Dove Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, where we covered sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And with so, so it's already been revealed, but we'll be covering interesting ground nevertheless. Yeah. The reason you and I are doing this now is that a couple things. One is that you've seen the transition. With Dove, we brought up sex and women, my relationship with women, but not the transition into regular life now. It was all stuff from the past, but not about how critical it was for my leadership development and practice. And since we scheduled doing this, I've also realized why I was doing these behind the mic series. And I'm going to indulge, if you don't mind, before you start leading with some personal revelations, I guess would be the maybe not too strong a word of why I'm delving into these topics, which on the face of it don't seem like they're about sustainability. So I'm going to tell a bit about why these things have come up. Please do. To talk about sex, drugs, and rock and roll and race, these are controversial topics. They certainly get people notoriety, but they, I would, on the face of it, think that they're a distraction from working on sustainability. So why am I talking about them so much? Because I've realized that these are areas where I feel vulnerable. And they're also areas, in the case of what, what I expect we're going to talk about, my relationship with women and developing how to be more attractive that's so critical to my leadership, being comfortable sharing what I feel vulnerable about, making people feel comfortable sharing their passions and emotions and what they care about, supporting them, connecting. So much of that, of what now I talk about coming from leadership, like classes I took in business school, but a lot of it came from stuff that was learning attraction and seduction with women. And I'm now getting to where I feel comfortable about these things. If I were to talk about my leadership practice innately, inherently involves being very open oneself. If I'm going to talk about leadership, but not talk about this key part of it, I can't practice my own practice. So I had to bring this out. Now, if I talk about women without fully explaining it, then people aren't really going to get the full picture. They're going to think, I, they, I don't know what people think, but it, they wouldn't get the, I'd have to talk about it. But then if I talk about it all, I got to give the full picture. Same thing with race and drugs. If I don't talk about how important these things were in my formation, my childhood with race, going out clubbing and trying ecstasy for the first time, th these things really affected me. And I don't want people to think, oh, he's just like doing some pickup artist stuff. And now I'm getting to where I'm comfortable about these things. So I kind of want to make this my coda. I'm not sure where things will go after this, but saying like, now I feel comfortable talking about these things. And if people want to know more, they can go back to the recordings, but I'm getting past a lot of this nervousness, fear of like, what if I say the wrong thing? Am I going to get canceled? It may happen, but I think I'm getting to where I'm more comfortable with it. And I want to tell a couple stories that frame what drove me to pursue working on my social and emotional skills around 
my relationships with women. I was talking with an, a longtime friend from business school. She was traveling through India at one point recently. One time she's going through some checkout. It must have happened that the guy behind the counter who's going through her tickets and all this stuff got her phone number off whatever, some document, and started to text her and contact her without any invitation from her whatsoever. And she started feeling very nervous. She responded once or twice with a polite stop. He didn't stop. She's in a place where, as far as she could tell, the law wasn't going to help her. She felt very vulnerable, very scared. This guy's creeping around. And she said, she's afraid to tell him to stop firmly because that might incite him more. And he's not stopping when she doesn't do anything. So she was scared and nervous. This is to me, terrible, terrible behavior on his part. This is what the law is for. This is what justice is for, is to protect her. He's doing stuff that, I don't know what the law is there, but I presume borderline, if not fully criminal. And I hope that the law finds him and stops him. That said, now there may be psychopaths in the world. There may be people who really want to hurt people, but I think they're probably low in number. I think probably this guy probably did not want to creep her out. I would guess it's possible, if not in this particular case, but in many other cases, the guy probably has, he doesn't know how to be attractive to women. It sounds like an act of desperation. If it's not this case, then I'm sure there are many cases where men feel like if I don't do something, there's no women in my life. I have no intimacy. I have no partner and I want one and everything I do doesn't work. If you're in a situation like that and you're thinking, I'm looking at the next 40, 50 years of my life. I don't know how the guy was with being alone. It sounds like he's swinging for the fences, like he's in desperation doing anything. Like if he does nothing, he's going to be alone forever. If whatever he does doesn't work, then he's going to try this. At worst, he's back where he started. He's probably thinking in his own mind. So he's going to try something. And in fact, it reminds me of a much more mild case. One time in actually in business school, I met this, this woman. We were in a room where people were supposed to study. So I texted her something like a compliment, like nice hair or something like that. And a little while later, a mutual friend came to me and said, why did you send her that creepy text? I thought, creepy? And actually many years later, with my girlfriend who was, was supportive of me teaching men attraction, she once said to me, how hard can it be to attract a girl? Just go up to her, give her a compliment and start talking. Now you and I hear that and think that doesn't really work. Because she knows I'm a good guy. And she thinks, mm -hmm. well, if it's a really good guy and everyone knows it, then all he has to do is like break the ice and then things are great. But the woman doesn't know the guy's a great guy. Every guy's great in his own mind, in his own heart. So I was actually doing what I thought I was supposed to by giving a compliment. And it came off as creepy. I thought I was being nice, but I wasn't. I mean, I, I was in my heart. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of people out there, a lot of guys out there thinking, give a girl a compliment. I've certainly gotten that advice. I, I mean, I talked about Jennifer saying it later, but I'd actually gotten that advice before as well. And I talked about other occasions when I had to hide parts of my sexuality. What hit me was that if you simply, if many men, I'm not saying all, but many, I think follow the advice. And there's this mainstream advice of like, get a good house, get a good job, get a good car. Very clear advice on how to do those things, right? School is all great about teaching those things, but not about how to form relationships. You watch the movies and the goofy guy always gets the girl doing stuff that's like, would probably in life be creepy. So he tries those things. I tried things. I don't think I ever got beyond like, oh, Josh, that was a creepy text. 
anything more than that. Cause I certainly, I, as far as I know, I didn't do anything that was anywhere remotely like this guy constantly texting that woman, that friend of mine, but I learned to stay back and not approach. I, I remember I'd see like a guy go up and hit on a girl and I think, ha, I'm so much better than him. I'm not creeping anyone out, but it, it, it took a long time for me to realize, but then I realized, and I'm alone. Then I learned attraction. So I deliberately went out and sought out. I learned about a community starting from reading Neil's, Neil Strauss's book, The Game. I learned that there were guys who were helping each other out in this area. I never got it from my dad or from my older stepbrother or from my stepfather or any uncles or anyone. I just thought approaching women at all, that alone would be creepy. So I didn't do that. I was actually trying to avoid being creepy. Then I learned about this community. And as far as I could tell, the predominant message from society was they're creepy. So I kept it secret. I kept it hidden. I used to, I mean, most people in that community use not their real names. I followed the rules of that community and, and kept it really secret for a long time. And only recently in the past couple of years was more open about it publicly. And by the way, when I go through a checkout line in any supermarket, there's always magazines that have tips for women on how to be more beautiful. And I don't see the equivalent for men. Then it's more like, what stereo to buy, what car to buy in men's magazines, a bit of like what suit to wear, but it still seems more about selling suits and not so much about how to behave and how to be open and how to express yourself. So I go into this world and I start learning these things. It's not that that world makes you creepy. I'm sure there are many creepy guys in that world, but from my experience was if you have no other alternative, that's where you go if you have no other alternative. And so guys who have no attraction skills end up there. But the goal is not for them to stay that way. The goal is to change that. If you want to prevent guys, all right, if you want to, if there are people out there who are psychopaths or really want to hurt someone, I don't know what to do about that. That's a criminal thing. But I think for me and for a lot of people, for a lot of guys, the way to prevent them, us, from being weird, from being so clumsy and inexperienced as to appear not knowing what they're doing is to teach them. I learned how to teach it. At first I learned it. I got pretty good at it to the point where one of the top gurus in the world hired me to be a coach for him. And then I started coaching and I got yet better both at the practice of attracting women and at the practice of teaching men to become more attractive to women, which became a core part of foundation of my leadership work, because there's a lot of overlap between being open and supporting a woman to feel open to share with me as with any other people, influence and persuasion and listening and paying attention and support. For a while, I was very nervous about sharing these things. And I think now I'm getting to the point where I've shared enough that I can feel comfortable. And these don't have to be forefront things of mine but they had to be something that I pursued enough that I could gain some fluency or some comfort in and confidence that what I'm sharing is something that the more people know about it, I believe that the more they'll understand and support and like what they hear and want that message to get out more. And so I hope that my conversation with you will make the transition from where things kind of left off with Dove because he wasn't in this world as deeply as you are. And I mean, I think of you as like being at the, at the top of this world. You can go into more depth than most, have more understanding from experience than most, maybe anyone. But then I hope I can devote myself to 
this mission of sustainability and helping people enjoy the transition to living more sustainably and not look at it as such a burden or chore, but something that they want to do. I hope I didn't use up all of our time just now. I wasn't paying attention to the clock. How did that sound from your end? That's good. I think that's a great overview. And you touched on a lot of, in your position where you're not trying to be a dating advice guru guy, but you have that background where you met up with a lot of dating guys and you worked on that area of your life for a while. It's kind of a delicate thing. And I think the thing that makes it so delicate is that in this space that I'm in, that you had your involvement in for for a period of time, the dating advice space is that there is this association with guys who are weird and who are on the outside of society, almost ostracized. It's sort of not totally fair because I'll tell you, running a a business in this, like the, the majority of readers, customers and everything that we get are just normal guys who have normal dating lives. And they're like, you know, I just want to figure out how to, I get girlfriends, but then after a while I lose them and I got to figure out how to not have that keep happening. Or there are guys who are like, you know, I'm getting dates, but it's not quite the girls that I want to date. How do I get the girls that I want? Like, what do I need to change? That's the majority of what we get. And then we get some guys that are like bad off socially and they just have no clue what to do with women. That's where I started out. When I got my start, it was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And one day I realized like, okay, Everything I've tried to get dates or whatever doesn't work. So I'm going to do this crazy experiment where I'm just going to start talking to random women and I'm going to try and get better at conversation and I'm going to try and figure out flirtation and I'm just going to figure it out as I go. I'm just going to work on it gradually and see if I can figure out how this stuff works. And then eventually you start to figure out some of the rules and lessons of, of this thing that for most people, it's not something that they ever think about or treat as a skill set. And women in particular don't have to worry about it usually. I've got a buddy that runs a women's dating advice company. There's a completely different set of problems that women work on. You know, for, for men, for women, the problem is how do I get the guy to commit? For men, the problem is how do I get the girl at all? How do I get this girl into my life? The women are like, I've got the guy in my life. How do I get this guy to stick around and not just be sticking around for a little while and then, and then heading off? And also, how do I get these guys that I don't want in my life not to be in my life? Yeah, definitely. How do I get those guys? But, but you know, as you see with a lot of women that uh, I think a lot of women are not too bad at dealing with, you know, having weird guys follow them around. They'll complain about it, but it does seem like a lot of women, too. They're good at getting away the guys that they don't want around them. I didn't mean to contrast the one class of women against the other women. I was contrasting against men. I don't know many men who are like, God, these women are constantly sending me I have hundreds of women contacting me on, on my social. Oh yeah. God, this woman just won't leave me alone. Or even there's so many of them. I don't know what to do. Yeah. I, I don't know many men in that situation. I just can't, I can't even use Tinder because I just get flooded with these messages. Yeah. It's a different, it's just getting flooded with obscene pictures of women's bodies that I just don't even want in my inbox. Yeah. I, I don't know many men like that. I don't know any men like that. I've never heard yeah. of a man like that. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Sure, there's one out there somewhere, but it's an interesting space to go through. And uh, it's such a development focused space where, very consistently, I've seen any guy that sticks in the space long enough does all this improvement and development on himself in a lot of ways. I just did a push for testimonials recently. We've got a wonderful design consultant named Lori. She's brilliant. She's worked with on design for a lot of different companies. And we went over and we looked at some of the design for our site. 
And she said, you know what your thing is? I look at your site, I'm familiar with it. And I know how good your content is. And I know how many people you help, but somebody new coming to your site doesn't know any of this. They don't know your background. And what you need is testimonials on the site. So people can see that this is stuff that works. We went out and we, and we did a big push for testimonials and we got about 230 testimonials from some of the people that have been readers for, of our site for a while or, or have purchased products with us or coaching. And one of the consistent themes we see from guys coming back is not just, I don't know where I would be without the site. Because of the site, I was able to totally change my dating life. I've got a girlfriend or wife or whatever, but we get guys that are coming back and they're saying, it's not just dating and women. And of course there is that, but it's also, you know, because of the stuff that I learned from the site, I was able to improve my relationships with my family. I was able to go and, uh, and negotiate much better pay at my job. I've built this circle of friends that I didn't have before because there is this, this general focus where if you're improving yourself with women, you're going to have to improve yourself overall. You're going to have to improve yourself socially. You have to improve yourself with leadership. You have to improve yourself in all these different dimensions because it's really the skill of socializing more than anything. And there are some skills that are specific to dating, but even those translate well to pretty much everything else you do. And most of the most interesting stuff that we're doing throughout our lives, we're doing with other people. And this is really what the skill set is about, is learning how to do things that you want with other people, which is something that most people don't really know how to do. They haven't been trained how to do. They don't train you to do that in school. Everything to training you to do in school is not working with people but everything you're ultimately doing is boiling down to your interactions with people. I think that bleeds over with where you started out at with some of this stuff, dating with where you are now with you teach leadership. You're using leadership to work for the endeavors that you're involved in right now, sustainability environment. And there's a direct path from where you started out learning a lot of this stuff to how you're able to use it today. What you said reminds me that there's, the input, the guys entering the world of learning attraction, there's many different sources. I tend to just look at this, my source, which was a guy, I think, who, who was like trying to do well, wanted to have women in his life, but didn't really know what to do. Mm-hmm. If you are clueless, there's nowhere else for you to go. I think it's easy for people to say, there's a lot of other communities that pick up on clueless people, like white nationalists. I just recorded with um, Matthew Stevenson, who this Orthodox Jewish guy who in college befriended David Duke's godson, who was brought up from birth to be a white nationalist. So we were talking about that. I was talking about how that community can often sound very supportive because they want to draw people in, especially people who are cast out by society. I think it's easy to see lots of communities like that, but, and maybe there are elements of that in this community, but that has not been my experience. I haven't interacted with them. I haven't found that to be the case. On the contrary, if you have nowhere else to turn and you want to become more part of society, then that's the route that I went through. I also took classes one summer. I did this intensive course in acting, in Meisner technique. When you start acting you know, on stage, it's wooden. Everyone looks terrible. I'm sure Meryl Streep, when she first started acting, was not the Meryl Streep that she, she became mm-hmm. and probably looked like any amateur. And so when I would go up and go up on stage, I'd be like saying lines terribly. If people think acting schools are, it doesn't produce terrible actors, it, but terrible actors enter the school and outcome. Well, after the school, you're not yet a great actor, but you have the technique to improve over the rest of your life. 
as you said, it's not just, it's everything. You really, it's, it's poise, it's addiction, it's, it's your breath, it's your paying attention to others. It's Harrison Ford on Inside the Actor's Studio talked about acting and he said, you have to let them in on everything. You have to live, which I took to mean you have to be the character. Let the world see this character that is not you or that is partly you. I don't know what the relationship is between Harrison Ford and Han Solo or Indiana Jones, but I think he was saying that you have to live. It's, when he said you have to live, I think he meant everything. Everything gets into acting. And I think it's the same. If you're going to marry a girl, I, every guy that I've ever met, no matter how much he wanted or that I ever coached, no matter how much he wanted to have lots of sex with lots of women, ultimately he wants a deep, meaningful relationship with one woman. And even the guys that come in and like, nah, after a while, they start feeling like, all right, I get it. I really want some deep intimacy with one woman that I can really connect with. I've certainly gone through a transition like that. Likewise, I meet a lot of women who are like, as much as they want one man, they're also like, you know, I do want to have some fun too. Obviously there's a huge variation. A lot of stereotypes about both sexes that are half-truths. You know, and stereotypes Especially about a lot of people this, look this... at you younger men and they're like, well, he's, what a scoundrel. He doesn't want to. But both sexes go through this exploration period where they're finding out about themselves and about what, kind, what kinds of partners can I get? And the men are figuring out what sorts of women can I hook up with? And the women are figuring out what sorts of men can I get to be interested in me, to want to commit to me, or also going through a fun phase. And eventually, once they figured out enough of that stuff, and they start to think about uh, maybe I could have something more meaningful than this exploration phase I've been going through. Some people go in and out of it. Maybe they get married too young, and then they end up in the wrong relationship, and they split up later, and they go through a, a later exploration phase. These different dynamics that people go through throughout their lives. I think we've given a good preface of how rich and meaningful this process can be in contradiction to the mainstream view of you should just be yourself. I think with any performance, you know, active, social, emotional, expressive performance-based field, be it mm -hmm. performance art or music, painting or sculpture or sports, athletics, leadership in business or in politics, the military, I think you begin with, you just look at the other people who are doing it and you, you mimic ineffectively. And then you start learning some probably practices that, that don't work very well because you're trying to be like someone else. Then you realize, oh, it's hard. You realize you're protecting yourself. Or I realized I was protecting myself so much. That's what's the unnatural part is protecting the vulnerabilities. The only way I know past that is, or the best way I know past that is practice and rehearsal and reflection, knowing role models and teachers and, and mentors and you go through, I think the term is from another field, but the uncanny valley, they say in, well, people can look up what the uncanny valley is. Well, it's, you know, when you're doing cartoons, you can make it look cartoonish. And then as you get it more and more, trying to make it more and more lifelike, you go through this uncanny valley where it's, if it's too close to human, but not exact, like I think of the movie Tintin was like in the uncanny valley. And then on the other side, you get perfect realism again, or when you begin attraction or you begin acting or you begin drawing or sports you look clumsy and oafish and then you start looking fake creepy or uncanny and then you emerge and then you can express yourself fully 
you discover things about yourself. You become more sensitive to your values and your fears, and you become more comfortable sharing them. The social and emotional components you start mastering. I believe that I've reached some measure of mastery. And actually opening up and saying this stuff publicly is a major piece of it. Before I talked about it on this series, I would talk about it with friends. Before with friends, I would keep it silent, keep it quiet, or just only talk to people in that community about it. But even then I couldn't be fully open about it. Talking to friends got me some distance. Speaking openly about it and recordings that are gonna go on the internet that I know are gonna be there forever. Even if I take them down, I'm sure they're somewhere. I guess the next stage might be like where I reach a stage of being on Oprah or something where it's like not only where there's a huge audience or maybe being in a situation where with people who disagree with me, combative even, that might be another situation. Have I told you about the Charles Barkley spitting thing? Well, I think so, but we can go over it again for the audience. Charles Barkley, one of the great basketball players of all time and played in Philadelphia when I was growing up. He's widely known for being able to say things that if anyone else said they would get fired. And yet for him, everyone's like, wow, I can't believe he said that. He gets promoted. I don't know how much sports analysis he does now, but he shows up on sports TV a lot. Famously, I don't know if I can get the details right, but this is after he retired a cop pulled him over for going through a stoplight or maybe going through a stop sign. And he says something like, sorry, I was in a hurry. This woman wants to give me a blowjob. This is the sort of thing that most people can't, if they say it, they get punished for it. And he just, people dig him for it. Apparently growing up, he was a shy child. So there's an incident earlier in his career. I think he was playing for Philadelphia at this time. I don't know the details, but I believe it was an away game. Some fans from the other team were taunting him. Racial epithets. So you can imagine it's pretty serious stuff. He hasn't yet learned, you're in the NBA and they're just fans. You don't have to pay attention to them at all. But I guess they got under, under his skin. So at one point, maybe after dunking it, at one point he spits. You think he spits. He said later that he spit in their direction, like on the floor in their direction. But I think people thought he was spitting at them. Some of the spit hits a 10-year-old girl that was sitting there, totally undisconnected from this whole thing. And presumably, if they're shouting racial epithets, they're offending her. But giant basketball player spits at 10-year-old girl is something like that as the headlines the next day. If you go online, you can find an interview with uh, Pat Riley interviewed him. Barkley's like, even my mom is like, Charles, you're, you're on your own on this one. Because there's not much you can defend against if the accusation is you spit on a, on a 10 year old girl who's there to watch a basketball game, how he handled it. I'm not sure of exactly the details, but some of the upshot was that he befriended the family and came out. He weathered this. He didn't apologize and shrink away. Like I think when um, Tiger Woods was caught, I think infidelities, he didn't do what like Bill Bird did his comedy routine afterward was like, when you become the best in the world at something, women are throwing, oh, here's what we were talking about earlier. He probably did have women throwing themselves at him all over the place. I'm not sure. Mm. But he just, he didn't say, he didn't give his perspective. Charles Barkley, I think, did. It was like his crucible that he came through. And I think that was something that allowed him to be more open, not less open. I think he recognized that the more he shared of himself, the more people understood him. And then he could speak his mind because he had spoken his mind. And I think that I'm, I may at some point have a moment like that. But part of why I'm sharing the stuff in these Behind the Mic series is to partly learn the vocabulary and, and, and practice. 
hopefully diffuse such a situation. So by the time I'm in a situation where people might disagree with me and say, oh, all that pickup artist stuff, you're just some creepy red pill guy. Then I've been through it before. But maybe there'll be a situation in the future where I do something that is the equivalent of, of I don't know, will look like to the world like I spit on some 10-year-old girl, which I never intend to do. But it could look that way. I'm sure he didn't intend to do that either. Mm-hmm. I felt like I had to face my vulnerability and I feel like I've gotten past it, although there may be more to come. Yeah. Get the stuff out there, test the message, refine and hone the message. That way, should you end up at a position where, you, where someone is attempting to skewer you with it or feeling you out to see if you can be skewered, you're, you're not uh, running and hiding and flipping over and showing your belly, but you can talk about it in a calm way that is understandable, that people can get the perspective. They aren't saying, oh, okay, this guy is, you know, know, that they're able to see you as a relatable human being engaged in normal human being activities and not some weird, creepy alien other who's doing bizarre things and and acting in antisocial ways, which is not at all the case. Yeah, that's the outward facing part of it. There's also the inner part of it, which is I might call it Machiavelli, not to dismiss it or put it down, but the practical way of looking at it. Also from the artistic perspective of learning about myself, where is this stuff coming from? Mm-hmm. I couldn't have said a lot of the things that I've said in this conversation or my other ones if I hadn't explored so that I don't want to just say, don't run away and expose my belly. And, and what do I want to show? Who am I? What do I want to say? Where is this coming from? What experiences formed me and shaped me? Which ones do I want to keep? Which ones do I want to let go? Which new experiences do I want to find? I view a lot of this as an art, a performance art. And performance art benefits from many things. Genuineness and authenticity, I think, are some of the main ones. Okay, maybe Harrison Ford is Indiana Jones when he's playing Indiana Jones. Or Daniel Day-Lewis playing Lincoln, which I think is just close to the pinnacle of the art or when he played um, Daniel in There Will Be Blood, Goodfellow, or uh, I forget his character's name. On the one hand, you could say he's fully in the character and he's just showing the character, but actually he's showing so much of himself. No one else would play the character that way. I think exposing oneself more, that's the route that I'm going. That means I have to find out who I am. Plainview, Daniel Plainview, I think was his character's name. Yeah, there's a lot of value in getting more in touch with your raw self. It's interesting in a way because we kind of dismiss the regular advice of be yourself as overly cliched and simplistic. But there is at the same time a kernel of truth in it and then it's very correct. You do want to be your self, your actual true self. But getting to the point where you can be yourself, you have to go through this process of going into this chrysalis, if you will. I'm reading a book right now called Deep Survival. It's a fantastic book, and it looks at how people survive in all these extreme situations, being lost in the wilderness, shipwrecks, airplane crashes, all these different situations. One of the fascinating things that they have found is that the people most likely to survive are children under the age of six years old. And then some of the people that are least likely to survive are children between the ages of seven and 12 years old. What's happening is that children who are six or under will still behave in these very instinctual ways where they'll just feel something and they'll do it. You know, if if they're they're getting too cold, they'll crawl into a tree trunk and hide in there. 
and whereas older children have started learning to fit into the world and not listen to their instincts, but they haven't learned all the strategies that adults have learned. So they're in a much worse position than younger children or than adults. When we recorded a, our uh, course, One Date, which is the course that we have for men that, that teaches them dating and attraction, you know, we had a couple of women on set and we had a female director as well because we wanted to have the female perspective as well, not just a couple of guys talking about dating. We want women there that, that we can interact with. And the first couple of days, we had a huge amount of pushback from the women who, you know, our female director and then our two actresses that we had with us, they took me aside and they're like, I don't know why guys need to learn all this stuff. You know, this is too much. This is technical stuff. You know, men need to just listen to their instincts. You know, I, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't know why you're telling guys that they need to know this stuff. The way I explained it to them was if a man were to truly follow his instincts with women, I agree. That's correct. He would be able to do everything that he wants and needs to do. The issue is that we live in complex societies where we spend our entire childhood and young adulthood training people out of their instincts. We're training them how to follow rules and fit into a civilization where people are behaving not like animals, but they're suppressing this inner animal, suppress this instinct, follow all these social rules and manners and niceties. And when you do that, you train out the ability to listen to these instincts. You then put men around women, and then somehow they're supposed to snap into this instinctual nature again, and they can't do it. They get around a woman, and there's an instinct deep down inside that's telling them what to do. But on the surface level, they feel afraid, they feel nervous, they second-guess themselves, they doubt what if I do this instinctual thing, but she treats me like, like an animal, like a predator, like some creepy weird guy, like why is he behaving this way? So I should be polite and nice and keep my distance and not talk to the stranger. Maybe I'll be imposing. I don't want to do any of that. And then these guys can't go for what they want. So a lot of it is, how do you take this man who has been conditioned to be this, this very civilized individual who is inoffensive who is not, not imposing anything on anyone. And how do you train this guy to actually get to the point where he can listen to his instincts and behave in an attractive way and go for what he wants? And it's the same thing with all these other social skills. How do you get to the point where even within the context of a civilization, you can still listen to your instincts and be a leader, be someone who is socially attractive and capable and able to do the things that he needs to be able to do. So you're kind of going through this, this stage of... You've been acculturated, but now you need to get back in touch with your animal roots, with these instincts that everybody has, but they get buried through all this conditioning and training and teaching that we go through. Oh, it's an interesting process. Yeah. And I'm going to add that here we switch. You talked about this chrysalis this, that he goes through. What makes the man this nice guy? What made me this nice guy was listening. Like I had a system in place in front of me, which is get good grades in school, that'll get you to a good college, get good grades, that'll get you to advanced degrees. And, and all that stuff was following the rules of society, which of course I want to be a member of society, but it didn't, I didn't learn about myself. It was, you know, learn the values. What, what does values mean in Plato and compare and contrast that with Maya Angelou? Okay, but what are my values? I was learning to comply and succeed in a system where compliance with that system would be rewarded but those rewards were external rewards. They weren't personally in, they didn't bring satisfaction and joy and things like that. The crazy thing about 
how to learn about yourself is ironically what I call playing scales because everyone knows that if you want to play piano, you've got to play scales. I think, I mean, maybe there are other ways of learning, but as far as I know, that's the way to learn to play scale, to play piano. And if you want to get on Carnegie Hall stage, presumably if you're at Carnegie Hall, you're not playing scales. You're playing your heart out. You are being yourself. You're expressing yourself. You may be taking the notes that Mozart wrote, but no one wants to see a computer just play the notes. They want to see you expressing yourself. And the way to do that is ironically through playing scales. When I took my first tennis lessons, the coach would like hold my hand with the racket in it and move my hand in the arc of a forehand. And then I'd hit lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of forehands, lots and lots and lots of backhands. And in any performance, active, social, emotional, expressive performance-based field, you have to practice the basics. And it, it seems weird that on the face of it, wait, if society teaches compliance and that leads to inexpression of yourself, of your personality, of making you not be yourself, and you lose track of, wait, which is me and which is not me, because you practice trying to do all these things so much, you lose track of which one is actually instinctual and which one is, was layered in because they're all so packed on top of each other. And practice, well, practice makes perfect, they say, but rehearsal, the more that you do the same thing over and over again, you learn the muscle memory, but you also learn, why do I do it this way instead of that way? You could just look at silhouettes of tennis players and know who they are, because even though they all practice the same beginnings, each of them emerges as a different tennis player. I'm going to have to read this quote. Oh, wow. This file is even open on my, on my desktop. This is one of my favorite quotes. In fact, in my file of inspirational quotes on my computer, it's the top one. It's from Martha Graham. The dancer is, oh, so for people who don't know, Martha Graham is like the, 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 the queen of, of modern dance. She is one of the main figures in transforming dance from ballet, where it's like this technical perfection, to modern dance, which was very different. People call her the Picasso of, of dance. So here's the quote. The dancer is realistic. His craft teaches him to be. Either the foot is pointed or it is not. No amount of dreaming will point it for you. This requires discipline not drill, not something imposed from without, but discipline imposed by you yourself upon yourself. Your goal is freedom, but freedom may only be achieved through discipline. In the studio, you learn to conform, to submit yourself to the demands of your craft so that you may finally be free. So that's the main quote. I love how she contrasts conforming with freedom. Actually, it goes on. And when a dancer is at the peak of his power, he has two lovely, powerful, perishable things. One is spontaneity, but it is something arrived at over years and years of training. It is not mere chance. The other is simplicity, but that is also a different simplicity. It's the state of complete simplicity, costing no less than everything. And here she, he, she contrasts spontaneity, which you think of as in the moment, takes years to happen. And simplicity which you think is just one little thing, takes everything. And then the final part of it is, nobody cares if you can't dance well. Just get up and dance. Great dancers are not great because of their technique. They're great because of their passion. I think she has captured there what I've devoted my life to, which is to learn to create freedom, simplicity, spontaneity through 
the only way I know how. Practice and rehearsal and reflection. Actually, I'm going to give one more quote. Charlie Parker, the great jazz saxophone player. He says, you've got to learn your instrument. Then you practice, practice, practice. And then when you finally get up there on the bandstand, forget all that and just wail. I think they're both great quotes and they get at the crux of learning any kind of skill to a high degree of where at the beginning, it's a lot of rote, a lot of repetition, and then a deliberate focus on, all right, where are my weak spots? What parts in particular do I need to work on? Why am I getting this thing wrong? Why do I keep stumbling over this part? How do I fix that? How do I work on it? Keep repeating it until you get it right. Come at it from different angles if you can't figure it out. And doing all this very laborious stuff, whether with social skills, dance, playing an instrument, uh, anything that you want to learn. Pretty much everything in life is a skill. I mean, I can't think of anything that can't be learned in a skill building sort of way, which is, I think, very freeing for once you have that mentality that anything you want to learn, you can learn with sufficient time and discipline. It's a, a pretty incredible realization. Yeah. It- now, here's something that is a, sets learning attraction apart from all these other things. If you don't act very well, you might have your friends come and see you in a small performance. If you can't play, you know, your first time playing violin in front of, you, in front of your family, you know, they're supportive and so forth. They're generally, they know what they're getting into. You've invited them. They're choosing to be there. If you want to get good at women, you've got to go and approach women that have not asked to be approached. But to the extent it's all about life things too, you have to do lots of things that are not that, I mean, some of them, the, I swam across the Hudson River. That was with a guy that I know from this world. We became great friends and remain great friends because of the closeness and we would do daring things like that together. Well, we both chose to do that. I'm sure there's a lot of women out there that I approached with every intent to charm them and it came off not so great. And I think less now than ever before. Actually, one time I was hanging out with a friend and we spent all afternoon hanging out. I hadn't seen him in a long time. And we had a really deep, meaningful conversation. I don't remember the content of it specifically. After several hours of just opening up and being self-expressive and learning and growing, we decided let's go out for a drink. So we're going out for drinks at a bar down the block from me. I start talking to some girl that I just met. I start talking to her almost word for word what I'd said to my friend earlier. At one point, she looks at me and she goes, you can give your lines to whatever. I see all through them. You're not going to get that stuff with me. She got really angry and was claiming that I was being fake with her. When I was actually opening up in the same way that I just opened up with a friend. Mm -hmm. I believe what happened, this is my read of the situation, is that I think that I was, my being open probably made her feel good in a way that we feel good when someone's open with us. And I suspect that if she felt, she might have associated feeling good with like, ah, that's probably a line. It must be a really good line that he's got there. And that's why she interpreted it as a line when it was, it was the opposite. There's also the possibility I've noticed if I, uh, you know, the first couple of times, if, I, if I've had like a really good conversation or, or told a funny joke or something, and then I say, hey, that was great. Let me repeat that to somebody. When I repeat it, it sounds a little bit practiced. 
And then once you do it a few more times, you get smoother with it. So it can be that too. That could be that I sounded like I was repeating something. Yeah, I try not to. That's why I made a point of like saying, I, I, I don't know exactly what happened, but I don't know what led to her saying that. I only know what yeah. she said. Yeah, you can, I, you can never, it's a weird thing with social skills. You, you're never going to know with 100% certainty why somebody reacted the way that he or she reacted. And maybe you can get that person to sit down and have a conversation about it. Even then, a lot of times people don't know exactly why they reacted the way they did. They'll pin their reaction on something. They'll say, well, it's because you did this or that. And then if you have a longer conversation with them, you can bring out that actually it was some other reason completely different that they weren't even consciously aware of at the time, but some other thing caused that reaction or some confluence of things in their own lives. You know, maybe she had pent up stress and, you know, it could be something you did, something going on with her, some combination of something you did, something going on with her, something totally unrelated to anything you did. You know, this is one of the weird things with socializing because with learning the social arts, it's not just you working on a skill, it's you practicing with different people who are in totally different headspaces from person to person. And you can do something that works great with one person and do something very similar with another one and then it doesn't work at all or backfires. So was there something wrong with the technique? Was there something wrong with the delivery of the technique? Is it just that that's how it's going to be? It's going to work sometimes and sometimes it's going to not work. It's a much more... A chaotic thing to learn than than a lot of things, especially things where you're working one on one and you're not dealing with another living being that's going to react in unpredictable ways. People say is chess dead because now computers can beat humans in chess, but playing against a human is not just who wins the game. There's a lot more to it. It's you you want to develop and grow, and there's a human aspect to it. I mean, photography was supposed to kill art because people were trying to make it more and more realistic all the time. And now a photograph mm-hmm. can, with the press of a button, be more realistic than any painting. And the art world didn't give up. Impressionism and post-impressionism and all sorts of other stuff came out that it's really about expression. It's not about trying to make things perfect. Mm-hmm. I was, it made me think of um, recently my mom, whom I've opened up about all the stuff after many years. She, something happened between maybe her and my sister or my brother-in-law or something, someone wasn't responding to her in some way. And I said, mom, and she was like, what's going on? She was stressing out. And I said, mom, you know, one of the things that I taught a lot of guys who would for the first time start getting texts back and emails back from women. And every now and then, actually all the time, he wouldn't hear back from, from her for a while. And he's so used to not doing well that he's like, oh my God, she hates me. It's all the terrible. And I've learned that you don't know what's going on at the other end. Maybe her cat is sick and had to go to the vet. Maybe she's got some family issue that has absolutely nothing to do with you, but anyone would agree it should take priority, including you. You don't know. Mm-hmm. And my mom processed this and a couple of days later, she was like, oh man, Josh, that relieved so much. I, it's, you're right. Yeah, there's all this chaos. Mastering it means that you get a measure of handling very difficult situations. Mm-hmm. Getting a lot more comfortable with the chaos too. Yeah, there's a difference between a big difference in life. Some things are like chess, which is rules-based. You know, you can put the pawn down anywhere in the square, but it's just, it's in that square. You know exactly what the positions are at any time. Surfing, on the other hand, there's no rules, really. I mean, there's competitions, but just surfing in general is like, it's you and the wave. 
And the best you can do is you can't change the wave. You've got to ride that wave. Of course, chess at higher levels, it's at a different level. It's, it's mastering over the course of a lifetime as is surfing and surfing in a from a different perspective. There's lots of technique and so forth. But this model, some things in life are more like surfing. Some things I handle more like surfing and some mastery based or, or mastering the, uh, how do I put it? Skiing is like that. You're doing your best against forces that could level a house. Mm-hmm. And all, all you got is this plank beneath you versus knowing the rules better and practicing. Yeah, different things in life. Now, before we started recording, I remember you said that there were, you had some time constraints. And I'm not even sure we, if we got to the questions that you had prepared. Yeah, I was going to say, we haven't even got to the questions yet, but I believe <laughs> we are out of time. So we'll have to save those for another session. Well, I appreciate your running through these things with me. And I hope... Um, that I presume that you were along the way thinking to yourself, I could force onto these questions, but what we're doing now is probably listeners will value it in some way. Yeah. I think we had a pretty interesting conversation. It's interesting to me anyway. I think other people will hopefully find it interesting as well. Talked about some interesting topics about both learning in general, but also what makes learning these uh, different skills and socializing different or, or, or why, why is it even necessary to learn these things? I think these are, are topics that I, pretty much everybody is interested in psychology. You know, it's a basic thing with humans, men, women, everybody likes to hear about this stuff. How do people think? Why do people do the things they do? It's a pretty elemental subject of interest. Anytime you're talking about these sorts of things, it's usually pretty interesting to people. I hope so. I have, I have this inner compass, which tells me if I'm really enjoying saying something. And I have to say, it's, it's still nervous making to share deep things that I could be that make me feel vulnerable. But I'm getting more, I guess, in the direction of Harrison Ford of being more comfortable and and seeing the value of it. And I also feel cathartic sharing these things. So I have this inner compass isn't the right word, but something that says, if I'm enjoying saying it, there's a pretty good chance that I'm boring people. Although like I'm entertaining myself at their, at, at their expense. But I think that the more that I, it's genuine and authentic as opposed to trying to impress or seeking approval, I think I'm starting to gauge where I can share stuff about myself and it's interesting to others and valuable to others, not just to myself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I found all the things that you shared today interesting. I think a lot of people will. Well, there's a big selection effect with you. We've been friends for, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Oh, this is true. By the same coin, I've heard a lot of the things that you've had to say before. Still find it interesting oh. anyway. <laughs> well, what's my word against yours? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So well, if you're listening to this podcast, give your answer in the comments. Yeah. Is this interesting or boring? Help us settle the debate. And let's wrap up with, um, I hope that people feel like if this is interesting to them and they want to improve at this or just learn more about it, then they should go to your page and learn more of your, your stuff. Sure. If you're listening. So, so we, uh, it's, it's mostly for men, pr- predominantly for unattached men, though we do have quite a few uh, men in relationships. We have married men with children at this point, because we, we talk about, uh, you know, it's not just dating advice and how to get the girl, but we have a, a lot of content on that as well. But it's also focused on mindsets, relationships, romantic psychology. We do have a set of female readers. Uh, the thing that I have heard from female readers, we get some female readers that find our site and absolutely hate it. 
and we get others that re- find it absolutely interesting. And we do have a dedicated following of female readers who will say things to me like, I wish there was a site like this for women. Or they'll say things like, you know, I don't necessarily like the way that the site is presented because it's very man focused, but I find the, the general content on the site to be fascinating. And they like it from, uh, you know, learning the, the psychology of it, the, the tools, the tactics. Some of them use it as here are things for me to look out for. Some of them use it as here are things I can use myself. Some of them use it as like, I wish my boyfriend knew some of these things so he could use them with me. But if you're a man who wants to learn this stuff or you're a woman who's curious, the website is girlschase.com. And if you're a guy who's, who's just getting started, we've got a quiz that will help you figure out basically where you're at with dating and give you some recommendations on what to focus on to get started. To take that quiz, you can go to girlschase.com slash quiz, and that'll start you out on that. Just answer a few questions, and then we give you a free ebook that tells you what we think you should focus on based on how you answered the quiz. So give it a look. We've got a lot of articles, tons of content on there. Hopefully not too shocking or egregious if you're, uh, you know, uh, we talk about getting girls and that sort of stuff. But then a lot of psychology, mindsets, relationships, everything along that continuum. My impression, I read it periodically, is that, and I'm, I'm appeared on your podcast, is that it, it's for all levels. I think it tends to, I mean, there's definitely stuff in there that's like super advanced. And there's a lot of stuff in there that I'm like, oh, I've seen this a million times before. So it's so basic, but I guess there are some beginners who are at that level. But I feel like a lot of it is guys who have tried a bit and know a bit, but haven't yet mastered. Is there, is there a sweet spot or is it for everyone at, at different levels? Well, we have different writers. We've got a guy named Tony who usually writes for beginners. We've got a guy named Alec who usually writes for very advanced guys. The majority of the content, or at least half the content on there is me started as just my blog and then we brought other guys in but i still write the, the lion's share of the content you know my content when i write i try to aim it at a normal every time i write something the focus for me is write for a normal guy who has no exposure to any kind of dating advice stuff before he's only been exposed to just regular mainstream mainstream stuff of you know just follow your heart be yourself and he's coming in here for the first time so i don't want to throw any jargon at him i don't want to give him perspectives that are going to totally alienate him but I also don't want to treat him like he's an idiot. So it's like, here's a normal guy with a normal understanding. And here's how to use it. Here's how to understand how this particular, whatever it is we're talking about, here's how it works. Still make it accessible to beginners. And then still also throw in some tips for the advanced guys. You know, if you're advanced, here's how you're going to be using it. Here's some things to focus on. If you're more advanced, some of the ways that you can use this technique beyond the way that a normal guy or a beginner would use it. So that's my particular focus when I write. I I like to think I usually hit those points. Targeted to normal guy, accessible to to beginners, and still useful to more advanced guys. That's the aim. I've never asked you that strategy question. I knew you before Girls Chase. So I still see it as a site of a friend of mine. But then you've told me some of the, I don't know if it's accomplishments or is it the most downloaded site? I know you've told me these things and I don't think about it because I'm, you're just a friend of mine, <laughs> but what's yeah. your, are you like a superlative site in the area? Yeah, we're probably the most known site online right now in men's dating advice. Uh, for a long time, we're the most trafficked one. And then we've, we've gotten beaten down by Google recently. Two years ago, we we're doing a million visits a month and I think it's down to about 200 grand now. We got to fix some stuff on around the site and update some older content. I think we'll get back up there again. 
but for a long time, a lot of our audience, we just, we did a testimonial push, you know, how did you, how did you find us? And everyone says, you know, we found you through word of mouth, we found you through Google, we found you through all these different ways. But when I've talked to other guys in the industry, they're like, yeah, you know, everybody knows us. And it's a weird thing for me too, because I, you know, I'm not always out socializing with people that know the site. In my day-to-day life, I'm somewhat private and I don't necessarily talk about what I do. Just, you know, if people ask me what I do, I'll just tell them, you know, I'm doing marketing and conversions. But when I meet people that know the site, I get a lot of, they know it, their friends know it. It's changed my life. Here are all these ways it changed my life. People are telling me, you know, that this site taught me how to be a man and this site's responsible for the birth of my child. So you get all this stuff coming in and it's, 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 it's always a little bit, uh, it, you know, it's great. It's also a little bit strange, just the, the disconnect between your daily life and then the reaction of people that are familiar with the site, the content. And there's a lot of people that are, especially when you've had, had over 50 million visitors over the course of the last decade. You get a lot of people that are you know, a lot more than I think you realize when you're not out there interacting with it all the time, which I'm not. Partly I'm taking away as you're saying this, that someday I'll talk about how my site on sustainability has led to tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions, maybe billions of people saying, oh man, before that, I thought acting sustainably was like a burden or a chore. I thought if I'm not, if society isn't growing GDP and population as fast as possible, we're going to return to the stone age and 30 will be an old age and everyone's going to die in childbirth. Mm-hmm. And that switched me to realizing it connects me with people. And I like fresh fruits and vegetables more than Ben and Jerry's and Doritos. Yeah. If you get it out there, if you get it built up, marketed the right way and the message is clicking with people. And especially if it's having a life-changing impact, and I know your stuff can, because I've heard you talk about all the, all the, the, the reactions from all these different people who've gone through some of your programs or your approach to, to improving the sustainability in their own lives. And they're having these reactions where they start doing something that feels like a chore, or they don't really know if it's going to click with them. And in the end, it becomes this almost a life mission, or at least something they're very proud of and that they enjoy doing in their own life. Well, we've gotten onto internet strategy and that's enough of a different topic that as much as I'd love to go for another couple hours on that, yeah. wrap up here. Let's do so. Thanks again. Talk to you next time. Thanks, Josh. Talk to you next time.